The sound of the Amish tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International for today's English language feature programs. Coming up ahead this hour, we will have Stroke of Light with Jake Chen. That'll be followed by Eye on China with Natalie So bringing us her weekly take on current affairs on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. And we'll also have our weekly Mandarin language lesson, Chinese to go. But we'll get the day underway with Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan this Thursday, November the 8th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sora in the host chair today, joined in the studio by Paula Chow. Hello. And John Van Triest Hi is there. here as well. Hi, John. Today we're going to be talking about foods to eat as winter approaches. We'll be hearing uh, from architect... Uh, Rem Coolhouse, uh, who's released a book and has also been talking about a building that he designed in Taiwan. And after the U.S. midterm elections on Tuesday, we have delivered up the first Taiwan-born state senator in the United States. These stories coming right up. Okay, let's um, uh, talk about uh, this one first. This is probably the only story we'll, we will do or will have done about the U.S. general elections on November the 6th, which is um, that politician John Liu became the first Taiwan-born U.S. state senator. He won his race for New York State Senate District 11 in Tuesday's elections running as a Democrat for the Democratic Party. He won 55% of the vote and defeated his Republican rival, Vicky Palladino, got uh, close to 32,000 votes to take the race there. Uh, now, John Liu is uh, 51. He was born in Taiwan, but he moved to New York City at the age of five with his family and uh, grew up in the neighborhood of Flushing in Queens. He, in 2001, so he's been a, a career politician. He made history in 2001, becoming the first Asian American to be elected to the New York City Council. Uh, and he served on that from 2002 to 2010. Uh, he had a bid to run for uh, mayor in 2013, uh, but didn't make it past the primary stage. But he is now uh, a member of the U.S. Uh, of the New York State Senate. So congratulations there to John Liu. From one John to another. John, winter is coming. It's here, actually, according to the lunar calendar that's really? used here. Well, it yes. was uh, yesterday it was it was high 20s Celsius. Well, I think... Even up to 30, I believe. So, uh, 
You yeah. could have fooled me. Well, I've been in shorts on New Year's Eve here before, too. So I think this tradition of dividing the year up comes from people who live in more northerly climes than here, maybe. But uh, yes, Li Dong, which is the traditional start of winter in the lunar calendar, usually falls around November 7th to 22nd in the calendar, in the Gregorian calendar. And uh, that means that it's time, according to traditional Chinese medicine, to be eating and drinking certain things. And we've got a nice list of them here. Now... This article says that there are give some examples of food stuff that, that it says Taiwanese people eat at the start of winter, but I really don't think many Taiwanese people eat uh, mulberry, dried long and soft shell turtles. Now, Paula, when was the last time you ate a soft shell turtle? Soft shell turtle. When, have you ever eaten one at the start of winter? No. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. I think this is a more traditional list of recommendations, uh, but there are examples of things that people do get really into starting this time of year. What people actually eat uh, includes things that are more young in nature. They've got that uh, sort of warm, warming, uh, energetic sort of quality to them that uh, is prized this time of year in traditional Chinese medicine. So we've got your uh, sesame oil chicken soup. Uh, you can smell that everywhere, mm. uh, starting around this time, I guess. Ginger duck stew. That's a very potent smell that's hard to forget, uh, full of... Very strong herbs, mm. sort of a bit bitter. Almost. Yeah, well, no, that's that's definitely one that I ha I do associate with uh, with winter time in, yes. in Taipei. Um, mutton hot pot, which is not my favorite herbal chicken. Well, soup. Yes, if you're talking about uh, about uh, scent, uh, strong odors, yet yeah, the the lamb it's, hot pot is very very strong smell. It definitely mutton, is distinctive, yeah. um, and various chicken soups. And I I am a fan of the Chinese medicine. Hot pots. I had one the other week, actually, and uh, it does make you feel. It gets you in that sort of mood, doesn't it? Uh, although, like I you know said, what, what mood is the weather, that? a wintry sort of a wintry mood. mood. It's a, uh, not quite festive, but you know, uh, yeah, even though winter comes and goes here, I guess uh, it's it, too early it's to often, have hot pot. Uh, well, it was a bit cool last week. <laughs> but I was getting an early start. Yeah, normally it's not like we said. It's not usually people eat hot pot here at any time of year. Actually. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, like we said, it's probably not usually cold around here till after New Year, like January, February, you know. Well, according to this calendar, we're probably in spring by January. Well, we? that's why Chinese New Year is, is called, you know, the Spring, spring Festival, Festival yeah. even though spring is definitely not here yet either. So we're a bit early. Um, but uh, the other advice that Chinese doctors give basically is to eat a healthy diet i guess it's things like eating more protein consuming more vitamins and consuming more fiber so not terribly specific there uh, but they do have other ingredients that they suggest cooking with so you've got uh various meats but also soybean and soybean milk uh radish celery potatoes chinese cabbage and a variety of fruits and black rice also and they also recommend lots of nuts of various kinds. So almonds, mm. hazelnuts, chestnuts, walnuts, you name it. If it's nuts, you should nuts, eat it. Yes. Uh, one thing that they do caution about, because I think a lot of people are concerned with their young you know, energy intake this time of year, mm. is not to overdo those tonics that are advertised as boosting your young content. Um, they say that if you have a bit too much, you can end up with severe constipation, which is not a great way to start winter off. <laughs> no. Or any season, really. Well, so, if, I mean, if you're going to hibernate, then... <laughs> well, okay. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, if you, if you have, of course, constipation, but also acne, insomnia, excessive body heat, these could all be signs 
that you are just going a bit overboard with the warming foods or the young. So don't mm. take their suggestions, but you know everything in moderation, I guess. With a pinch of salt. Right. Uh, they also, of course, being Chinese doctors, want you to consult Chinese doctors before following any diet. <laughs> of course they do, yes. So let's get that consultation if, fee in. If you want to know if chestnuts are right for you, Come consult see your, Chinese your doctor physician. Today. <laughs> Okay, Paula, tell us about uh, the well-known Dutch architect Ram Koolhaas. Why is he in Taiwan and uh, what's he been up to? Okay, earlier this week, he was invited to award the AGA Awards for Emergent Architects. And in Taipei, he gave a book launch. He's, he, has, um, he introduced his new book, which is entitled Elements of Architecture. That book has 2,528 Pages. Is mm. it mostly pictures, though? Like, there's a lot of illustrated examples, I'm guessing, right? I don't know whether these are mostly pictures. But anyway, it has a total of 1.5 million words. Wow. Okay, so maybe maybe not so, much in, not so many pictures. That sounds like a breeze block of a book. You could probably build a house with that. <laughs> right. Well, he's a, a distinguished architect, and he's, uh, he teaches um, architecture and urban planning at Harvard University. And also, he is the architect behind the um, Taipei Performing Arts Center for Taiwan. And is that the one with the geometric shapes, like right. emerging from the side? Right next to the Tiantan uh, like uh, subway station. So right. very close to us, actually. Yes. He actually um, finished designing that building in 2008, for, and then the government I started um, building that um, in 2012. However, for some reason, um, they stopped for a while. And then last August, they started building that, um, you know, they started building again. Yeah. Right. How would you describe that, that structure? Because it is very distinctive, isn't it? This is the one we're talking about with, like, with the sphere. Yeah, it's like embedded right. in the side. It's like yeah. very... Yeah, like uh, as, as, so you've got a, yeah, the building, the main body of the building, and then the, uh, the, like a big globe, a big sphere just sort of... Pro- well, it feels like it's projecting right out yeah. from the building, doesn't it's it? It's not right. symmetrically placed either. It's just sort of there. Right. Were there some other shapes too? There's a sort of sci-fi look about it. I guess that's yeah. a good description. Were there other shapes too? I seem to remember there was like maybe like a cube or something, a triangular thing. I, I don't really know his, you know his idea behind it, you know, that building. But some people are saying that because that building is so close to the Shilin Night Market and so close to the Jiantan subway station so we don't know whether they i mean these structures are compatible oh i mean they they seem to clash they seem to clash yes well the subway yes that particular subway station has sort of uh it's almost designed like a pagoda isn't it it's a bridge with a bridge with a a suspension bridge kind of oh i must be thinking of another station then i don't know it's a it looks like a bridge it is it does look like a bridge Mm. yeah Um, I don't think they necessarily clash. Right, but it's right next to the Shilin Night Market. And when you go to Night Market, it's really um, crowded. I guess artsy, futuristic design and night markets aren't really things that... Well, and then that's people come by and and they write their travel blog saying Taiwan is a mixture of old and new. Oh, that phrase again. That old winter chestnut. <laughs> he also designed uh, um, uh, quite a few famous buildings, such as the Netherlands Dance Theater, Netherlands Embassy, Seattle Central Library, and probably a TV station in China. That was quite a portfolio yeah. then. Mm. Okay, finally today, this piece from Taiwan News. Uh, child actor... 
Jong Ja Jun. Sorry to read the characters here. Uh, has won the best leading actor prize at the 25th Minsk International Film Festival held in Belarus uh, on November the 6th. Um, let me see how old is. They don't say. <laughs> I wish they would just say. Okay, so uh, so child actor Jong uh, Ja Jun has received the award for best young actor in children's film for uh, what was a debut acting performance in a film called Long Time No See. See, there being uh, uh, the, the watery kind of sea. Oh, is it uh, an aquatic film? Yes. So so it's a pun. It's a play on words. Long time no see. I quite like that. the The Chinese title of the film is. Only the ocean knows. Hmm. Um, that sounds much. That's a very different tone, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Much yeah. less playful. Well, maybe it's a what playful. Does what, what does the ocean know? What dark secret does it contain? Many dark secrets <laughs> down in Davy Jones' locker. Uh, the film was directed by Heather Sway. Uh, now, Chong, who grew up in Orchid Island uh, Township, and I think uh, would belong to the. Um, the Dawu people. The Dawu people of, of Orchid Island, Dawu uh, indigenous people group. Uh, John was praised as an excellent swimmer and a genius actor by uh, the director. Preparing for the role, he had to learn acting in four years. Uh, Long Time No See is a 100-minute feature film. It's about the story of a young boy named Ma Nawei, whose father had been long working away from home. One day, he met a teacher named Yu Zhongshun, who discovered his talent in dancing, and Yu decided to write a musical script based on Ma's story. Later on, Ma reunites with his father, but what he brings back home to his son is a deep disappointment. Hmm. Spoiler alert. Well, okay, I don't know spoilers. I don't know what the thing is that disappoints him I so much. I think I may have seen a trailer for this, actually. Um, the movie uh, had total box office gross of 8.3 million Taiwan dollars. Chong also made it to the final nominated list of for the Golden Horse Awards this year in the category of Best New Actor. So that film, again, if you want to check out the trailer, it's called Long Time No See, S-E-A, directed by Heather Tsui, T-S-U-I. You can probably find the trailer there on YouTube. Okay, that's all we've got time for for today's here in Taiwan. But don't go away. Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to Go are coming up next. Then we will be back at the end of the hour to leave you with one more thing. But till then, I'm Charlie Starrer. I'm Paula Chow. And I'm John Ventriest. Take care. Do stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Write us at PO Box 123-199. Taipei, Taiwan, ROC. ROC. Stroke of Light. A portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Hello and welcome back to Stroke of Light. This week, we'll continue to explore the photography works showcased at Taipei Photo 2018. This is an annual exhibit at which photographers from around the world are invited to come to Taiwan to present their work. And this year, the spectrum of work is especially impressive since we get to see the works of photographers from the region 
such as China, Japan, and South Korea, as well as those from Latin American countries, such as Brazil and Chile. Last week, we looked at the body of work of a Chinese photographer named Guo Guozhu. We caught a glimpse of his techniques using pinhole cameras to expose his photos overnight to superimpose changes in movements and lights. And this week, we'll be looking at another photographer named Luo Dan, whose work is, in my mind at least, all the more impressive both in terms of scale and significance. The particular body of work on display at this photo expo deals with the changes in light and matters in a totally pitch black space. It is highly technical and abstract. During a seminar at the event, Mr. Luodan gave a lucid presentation on some of the other works that he has done in the past two decades. And these photographs were taken across the vast landscape of China. Luo presents his first series of work, titled Number 318 National Highway. He tells the audience that it is the longest highway across China, measured at 5,476 kilometers. And it connects Shanghai, the nation's economic center, all the way to Tibet, the largest plain of the country. Luo says he traveled from east to west and then again from north to west. The route he takes, he says, is basically a drawing of a large cross on the map of China. Luo tells us that his goal is to take an overview of China, of what it is in this day and age. He says that after he got into a creative groove, he simply kept it going, spending months and months walking, driving, and hitchhiking across the vast land. And after the conclusion of this particular journey, which spans a whopping 18,000 kilometers, Luo says he is still quite aware of the fact that what he ended up is subjective. It's what interests him and captures his attention. But in the large scale of things, it is still just a personal glimpse compared to the entire whole. And what Law ends up after almost a year on the road is a large quantity of photographs that cover a very diverse range of topics and themes. We see contrasts, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, while we also see similarities among the subjects. In Shanghai, where Luo's journey began, he captured many photos in crowded places. The Oriental Pearl Tower, one of the tallest buildings in the world and a landmark of Shanghai, is visible in the background of several photos. The people in the foreground, however, are quite different. They have this very different vibe in the frames. In the most striking photo, the tourists in the foreground are fully covered from head to toe. Many of them wear caps, face masks on their face, and not to mention a full set of clothes. Luo didn't really put any caption beneath any of the photos for explanation, 
I guess the intention is to leave a large amount of freedom for the viewers to interpret as they see fit. Personally, I think these photos could have been taken on days where the air quality was particularly bad, which is not uncommon in the early 2000s in China's more industrialized areas. People might felt the need to cover their mouths and noses when going out on this particular day. And probably without themselves realizing it, this particular choice of attire has made themselves just as interesting, if not more so, than the vista that they are looking at. While the Oriental Pearl Tower is certainly very striking in all its tall, slender, modern metal and glass wonder, the people standing in front of it is plain, simple, and undecorated. I picked this particular photo to start off my coverage of this entire series because among the huge variety of themes and subject matters, which we are going to get into in a minute, the one strand that seems to connect all the photos together is, in my eyes at least, the sense of contrast. This unintended serendipitous juxtaposition between the human subjects and their backgrounds that create this contrast that somehow packs an emotional punch. And we as viewers are amused, bewildered, attracted, and affected by it. Some of the examples of such emotional punch in Luodan's photos include a shot of a group of villagers in an unknown environment. They are all kneeling and praying. The profound sincerity that they express is further accentuated by the vast, endless mountainscape that we see in the background. It is as if, through praying, these villagers somehow manage to make a connection to the spirit of the mountain of the very vast land that they grew up on. In another photo, we see a young mother sitting in a toy train while cradling her child. The photo is again taken in what looks like a remote village, with vast grassland and mountain as well as poorly constructed houses in the background and not another person in sight. The train is probably the only thing that is left of an amusement park that was long abandoned. The train tracks are all rusted, and the trains themselves are decrepit as well. However, sitting in the middle of the vast and forgotten landscape, the mother and the child seem to be just as happy as anyone in an actual amusement park. The photo as a whole has this very strange vibe. It offers this mixture of emotions that don't normally mix well. The barren and hopelessness of the landscape and the sense of abandonment is greatly offset and contrasted by the unbridled sense of joy of the subjects in the center. And this unlikely mixture that forces our eyes to see closely just to be sure and forces our brain to recalibrate in order to piece things together is exactly the charm of these photos. Throughout the series, Mr. Luo Dan has captured people in the richest city areas, and those who stand in the field with ragged clothes and seemingly no other possessions. He photographed 
a large deserted bicycle shops in remote village with large rusted wheels still hanging at the shop front. He photographed high schoolers dressed in school uniforms and riding on horsebacks. When these visual elements that otherwise would never appear together actually mesh in his photos, they add to this new layer of wonder and they transcend the photos themselves. Often photographs taken from remote locations and of subjects from different cultures end up being not much more than a subject of wonder. They attract viewers' attention briefly with the initial wow factor while not having much further impact. Lua's photographs taken in remote corners of China along the number 318 highway manage to surprise us with the strangeness of the various locations while maintaining our gaze to the central human subjects. This in turn allows us to understand the deeper underlying relations that the human subjects have with their surroundings. And by that, we understand these subjects themselves better. Luo continued his journey across China's large landscape in his later series titled North-South. In this series, Luo delved a little deeper, I think, and got physically closer to his subject. We still see photos of people living and working in their environments, but this time the subjects are more isolated from their surroundings. A good example would be the photo of a young lady dressed in heavy winter gear, sitting inside a room and fixing her gaze on something she's working on with her hands. The rest of the room is blurred, so our eyes naturally rest on the peaceful, elegant lady herself. If the National Highway 318 project aims to introduce us to the relationship between people and their surroundings in all corners of China, then this series, North-South, opens an intimate door to the individual portraits of people in China themselves. Regardless of how the subjects are approached, framed, captured, and presented, the sense of soul and its connection to the surrounding is always present in Lua's photos. Please join me next week as we'll take a look at another important set of Luo Dan's photos in which he captured the individual portraits of those in a very remote clan in of those in a very remote clan in China. What's peculiar about this group of people is that they have been living in a place that is almost completely isolated from the rest of the world and that for the last 300 years all of them have remained Catholic. For Stroke of Light, I'm Jake Chen. China, first-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society. Hello and welcome to Ion China. I'm Natalie So. 
China has been luring Taiwan's allies away, and recently the U.S. has been trying to do damage control. U.S. lawmakers have introduced the Taipei Act, which would allow the U.S. to downgrade ties with countries that break diplomatic ties with Taiwan. As the U.S. is getting involved with Taiwan's diplomatic challenges, I speak with National Taiwan University International Relations Professor Yan Zhen Sun about how this will affect U.S.-China relations. Oh, I think the relation already being very <sighs> fragile. Right. You know, we talk about the trade war, and most recently we find a kind of standoff in the South China Sea. And so U.S. has a more, we call, comprehensive kind of containment of China now, not like the previous policy from the 1990s, you have so-called this engagement. You contain, but at the same time, you engage China. Because most of the U.S., including you know, the academic, the think tank, the university professors, the sinologists, China specialists, and then the State Department, the you know, Defense Department, the, even the business community, nowadays feel that the engagement policy has not changed China, which means China developed economically, but the expected peaceful evolution of become more open, more freer, Mm -hmm. and democratic never happened. Uh, So they feel that, you know, China needs to be contained. And then also right now in the diplomatic front, because I think U.S. finally realized that Latin America is a new battlefield because China set up this forum with Latin American country and China is, you know, used to be, right, long time ago, a decade ago, that China has no diplomatic allies in Central America. Mm-hmm. But now, 2007, the first one was Costa Rica and then you have Panama uh, and then this year you have El Salvador. So out of the seven countries, now Taiwan has four, China has three, and then we keep worrying about Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, which has a left-wing government. So this is, I mean, any time it can, it can be changed that China will have more diplomatic allies in Central America than Taiwan. I think that's why United States suddenly feel it is urgent to do it. But, you know, the policy of calling back the three countries that already broke relation with China, Taiwan. I think it's a little afterthought. It's too late. You should call those <laughs> who have not right, right, warn them. break relation. <laughs> and then this country them. also will argue, saying, you don't want us to break relation with Taiwan, but you yourself did it 30 years ago, <laughs> right? So 40 years ago. That's so it, it would be difficult you know, to come up with a convincing argument. And even in Taiwan, I think that sentiment is also there, saying, you really care about us? Why don't you try to reestablish diplomatic ties with Taiwan first? (laughs) And then everything will come, you know. So what do you think about the U.S.-China trade tensions? Oh, I think the trade tension will, you know, will for (laughs) at least another few years, maybe a decade. And... Uh, both sides are taking this one as a long haul and then see which which side blink first. We have not seen how the American consumers, you know, how this impact American consumer because the reason 
I mentioned this is American consumer benefit from the cheap imports of China. That's they true. have a great time. Uh, <laughs> everything's cheaper. Yeah, right? everything is cheaper, especially like furniture, electronic stuff, and everything, right? Mm-hmm. But now, if those things become more expensive, including textile and other stuff, uh, would, would that impact them saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be more patriotic, I'm going to spend more money to buy American made instead of China's made? If it's only 10%, 20% difference, maybe they would do it. But if it's 100% difference, I'm not sure. Okay, it's like in this movie, uh, you know, uh, outsourcing, right? Uh, people say, well, we are selling, you know, the American Eagle, which is made in America. It's $60. And then, you know, American Eagle made in China is $15. So which one do you want to buy? <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 the consumer, you know, first wanted to buy the American, you know, complaint saying, do you have American-made one? Yes, we do. But it's a $60. Do you want? And then eventually he settled for the $15 Chinese-made. So that's, I think, will hit the American consumer maybe next year or two when this ripple effect started to come in, hmm. uh, especially like, you know, we are entering the Thanksgiving, Christmas season. All the toys are made in China. That's Most true. of the kids, a lot kids, of the clothes right? too. A yeah, lot of clothes. yeah. So, so, so that will, I think, will have an impact on American consumers, and we will see how will that evolve. But never underestimate Americans' patriotism, <laughs> because after nine eleven, for a while, I saw all this inconvenience. In the airport, you mm-hmm. know, the security thing. American, which are never, you know, noted for their patience, <laughs> would, would, would not have this, like, waiting in the line for three hours, two hours to get into the airport. But they actually... Cooperate. Cooperate with this, so you never know. Hmm. Mm. But do you think this is going to affect the uh, midterm elections, the trade war? Well, China or has begun to uh, put advertisement in, you know, some of the critical... Uh, states like Iowa, which export a lot of the soybeans mm-hmm. and corn to China, saying, you know, you will suffer, right? <laughs> uh, but also like North Dakota, which is a deep Trump state, but they export natural gas. And China is now like it's not buying North Dakota's uh, natural gas, which might affect, for example, there's a, you know, very competitive Senate election there. Mm. Uh, so China, I think, is trying to do something, but each state has a different way of response. For example, South Carolina, which some companies have used a lot of components or parts from China. And they have a you know, UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, which is in the Trump cabinet. Uh, so they also have some senators which are very close, governor close to Trump. So they are getting an exemption from the Trump government. They can continue to import some of the parts from China without the tariff. Oh, wow. But if that hap- if that's you know going to be a pattern, then every state will try to do that. Say, give me the ex- exemption, right? Uh, because not just agricultural products exporting, but also not what we mentioned about consumer products coming into the United States, but also some of the parts. You know, after globalization, we call this vertical integration. 
is not there anymore in one country. Parts being produced in other countries. So America, if they want to bring back the whole manufacturing sector to the United States, there will be some difficulty because you don't have, you know, the the lower end of the you know the parts and other things to support your high end industry. So I think uh, this will evolve in the next uh, few months and especially next year. I think when we will begin to see. But in terms of immediate impact on the uh, midterm election, I don't see that happening right now. Mm. I think it's still being driven by the domestic issue. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Professor, for yeah, you're your welcome. thoughts. That was National Taiwan University International Relations Professor Yan Zhen Sun giving his perspective on U.S. China relations among Taiwan's diplomatic challenges. Thanks for tuning in to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Taiwan is a place full of voices, viewpoints, and stories. Hear them all here on Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan, straight from the source. Fitting in in Chinese is a special series on Chinese to go, which is jointly produced by the Chinese Language Center of Wenzhou Ursuline University of Languages and Radio Taiwan International. Fitting in in Chinese. 第七十六集，对话，新旧社区。Episode seventy-six, dialogue, old and new communities. 你们看，这附近的房子跟我们刚才看的有什么不一样？ Look at the houses nearby. How are they different from the buildings we've just looked at? 这一区的房子好像比较旧，也没那么高了。The houses in this area look older, and they're not so tall. 这些就是比大楼更早期的公寓。these are apartment buildings which were built much earlier than the taller buildings. 除了新旧之外,还有什么不同吗? Except for being older, how else are they different? 公寓大多是五楼以下,没有电梯,也没有管理员。The apartment buildings are all five stories or under. And none of them have elevators or superintendents. Wow, 这一区的房子好漂亮啊! Wow, the houses in this area are really pretty. 这里是新的独门独户的别墅区。比比看,跟后天的房子有什么差别? This is an area with single-unit dashes. You can compare these with the Tian style buildings. How do they differ? 
一家连着一家 A lot of the first floors of the Toutian buildings are shops, one right next to the other. 别墅,看起来像是很贵的豪宅。还有一个小院子。the dachas look like expensive, fancy residences that also have a little yard. 房价的高低要看地区，也要看学区。Whether they're expensive or not depends on their location and if they're near a good school. 差别很大吗? Is there a big discrepancy? Kan 哇哦！这一区的房子好漂亮啊！这里是新的独门独户的别墅区。比比看，跟后天的房子有什么差别？很多透天的一楼都是商店，一家连着一家。别墅。<笑> 看起来像是很贵的豪宅，还有一个小院子。房价的高低要看地区，也要看学区。差别很大吗？哇哦，这一区的房子好漂亮啊！这里是新的独门独户的别墅区。比比看。跟透天的房子有什么差别？很多透天的一楼都是商店，一家连着一家。别墅看起来像是很贵的豪宅，还有一个小院子。房价的高低要看地区。
Thanks for listening to our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. Well, I'm Charlie Storer back in the studio with Paula Chow and John Van Trieste, and we're going to leave you with one more thing. Paula, uh, an interview with uh, one of Taiwan's most prominent uh, gay rights activists, Ji Jiawei, uh, ahead of the elections that are coming up later this month where where the topic of same-sex marriage is one item that's going to be the subject of five of the of the ref of the 10 yes. referenda on the ballot i think yeah so uh, uh, over to you Okay, um, recently the Apple Daily did an interview with Qi Jiawei and it was a, it's a long story. Well, Qi said that he decided to become a gay in 1975. He told himself that he decided to be a gay for the rest of his life and he wanted to fight for gay rights. And then in 1986, started seeking legal ways to uh, to fight for gay rights. In 1988, he got married, although it, um, at that time, that's it's not official. And he started out quite early, didn't he? The 1980s, we're talking Taiwan's just emerging out right. of this long period of martial law when pretty much anything is banned or repressed in some oh, way. Or anything so. that is uh, right. through a counterculture. In that Not sense. very, yeah. Right. He's actually a pioneer because last year he won a cultural prize and for social reform. And then our vice president gave him the prize and the, the vice president said, Qi Jiawei is a pioneer, a respectable one. And then she, it's, it's really interesting because it, um, he uh, came out of the closet when he was in um, high school and he told his parents and surprisingly his parents were very, very supportive. The next day, his father gave him a concert ticket. And, uh, and his father told him that if you want to be gay, be a gay um, with um, a classic. But anyway, I, and he also um, helped the government to educate, educate the public about AIDS prevention. He has been doing a lot of things to fight for gay rights. Mm. And when he was 34, he had a godson. And the Gossam, um, at that time, the Gossam was only 15 years old. The Gossam said he himself is also gay, and but his father couldn't accept it. But Qi Jiawei accepted that. So they have... So a surrogate sort of relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. They have a very strong uh, relationship. And then she uh, said he was really happy when our justice said um, it is unconstitutional if... Taiwan bars gay couples from getting married. I believe he was the one that brought the lawsuit that led to that decision. Isn't that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Well, now, of course, uh, there's a ballot measure to confirm that, I guess. Right. Uh, well, he, he said that since 1973, uh, Taiwan um, gay community still faces um, discrimination in Taiwan. And he said over the past four decades, up to a thousand you know, gay people committed suicide. But that's definitely turned around through the work of groups like the Taiwan Hotline, uh, which is a, a, a resource for the LGBT community here. And now there's a lot of other groups as well. Uh, so, And, you know, of course, Taipei now hosts what is Asia's largest pride parade anywhere in, in Asia, I think. That's right. And that was just, uh, was that two weekends ago? Just yes, last weekend. I was there. And I think a record, was it 140,000 people? Close to that number uh, yeah. showed up. And it was so big, they had to split it into three different routes. With this, uh, with these ballot initiatives coming up, these referenda, I should say, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, I think anxiety, and but also of hope as well. And to get people ready to vote along the parade route, they had volunteers standing with these five, you know, 
ballots in gigantic form, holding them up, and everyone was given stickers ahead on the parade route, so that and they were told which way, you know, what to vote on this question, what to vote on that question, and you know, as they're passing by, people from the floats are chanting a slogan that helps you remember what numbers go to what and how you're supposed to respond. So you can actually practice ahead of time if you attend this parade. Uh, It was pretty interesting to see. And I think everyone kind of got that chance stuck in their head. So when election day comes around in a few weeks time, they'll know what to do. Well, that's all we've got time for for today's programs. Thanks so much for being with us. Do join us again tomorrow when our programs will include Taiwan Today and Live from Taipei. But for today, on behalf of all of us here at RTI, I'm Charlie Starr signing off for the day. for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.